psalm too. <laughs> Thank you. Why? Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath flares up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added, I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Suresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go to the king, go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, 
for the man the king delights to honour, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to the one, the king, or one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterward, Mordecai returns to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. And he told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Thanks, Renee. Uh, you uh, would have found on your seats there, uh, you'll find your Bible reading in there. You want to keep those handy because uh, we'll be referring to those and you've got to make sure it, I'm not making stuff up, uh, but it's actually in God's Word. Uh, you'll also find uh, this little outline. So uh, on one side, we've got a map. Uh, it gives you a bit of a, a picture. So the time frame we're in is about 480 BC. Uh, the Persians are in power. That yellow patch is all that King Xerxes controls. And these events take place in the capital, Susa, there. Uh, you also see a bit of a timeline at the bottom. Uh, and uh, we'll refer to some of that. And on the other side, you'll find just our uh, outline there, so you can follow along and make notes uh, if you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word, and uh, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it this morning. Amen. Well, uh, I, I watched a video this week uh, of a roller coaster malfunction. Uh, it was just horrific. Uh, but people were loaded into this uh, roller coaster contraption, uh, but before their harnesses uh, sort of locked in or could be clipped up, uh, the ride started going. Uh, and as the ride sort of flung right up into the air, sort of 15 metres up in the air, people just flew out the sides. And I can't imagine uh, what it must have felt in that moment as that thing began to move and you realised to yourself, I am really stuffed here. It would be horrible, wouldn't it? It'd be, well, it's, yeah, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be funny. Uh, it would have been absolutely terrifying at the time. And it's a little bit like that for what we just read uh, in Esther uh, for Haman. So we're on this kind of roller coaster, which is the last 24 hours of his life. Uh, and it's, it's the bit that we've all been waiting for in the book. It's the, yes, finally, here we go. Uh, the bad guy gets his just desserts. 
and the tables turn completely on Haman. And uh, we watch him go from sort of the, the highest of highs and the ride of his life to suddenly being thrown out in disaster, all because he picked a fight with God. And as we read through there, I don't know if you noticed, but I love the way that the, the historian picks up how Haman is feeling. He picks up his emotions. And when you just follow his emotions, it's this real up and down roller coaster right through. I think he probably went through in that last 24 hours just about every emotion that is possible, except maybe love. I don't know about that one. So he starts there, verse 1, on this huge high. He's just been to the most exclusive party on the planet. He, just he, got invited to a party with the king and the queen at the queen's palace. Not only that, but she's invited him back for round two the next day. Haman comes home on an incredible high, but on his way home, he takes a turn. He comes face to face with the one man, the one man in the whole kingdom that doesn't treat him like he should be treated. I mean, he's just walked out of a special party with the king and the queen. He's the most important guy there is. He's actually in the background pulling the strings for the king. And the one person in the whole kingdom that refuses to give him any honour or credit is Mordecai. And as soon as he sees Mordecai, we, we see that Haman instantly responds with rage. How dare this guy refuse to show me the respect I deserve? How dare that worm treat me like less than a nobody? He'd treat a beggar better than he treats me. And so in his rage, uh, Haman storms off to his home and, and he tries to, tries to make himself feel a bit better and restore his battered ego. And so he starts a little bit of his favourite pastime, uh, which is just boasting about how great he is. He starts telling all his friends and his family about how wealthy and important he is and telling them about this great party he just got invited to. And, but even in the midst of his boasting, it can't push out this niggling hatred that he feels towards Mordecai. He's so overcome with loathing for this man and what this man represents that even in the midst of this kind of high point, he can't enjoy himself. And it's because of who Mordecai is, it's because of what he represents that Haman hates him so much. See, Haman is an Agagite, an enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai is a Jew. Someone who believes and declares that there is one God who made everything. Someone who is from a people who claim that that one God created everything and rules everything and is in control of everything. A people who claim that God will judge every single living being and who, by his constant presence and refusal to acknowledge Haman, declares regularly, without words, that actually God stands opposed to Haman. Well, uh, just like a child, Haman starts sulking uh, about Mordecai. You know, he's celebrating how great he is, but then he just can't help himself but have a whinge at this point. And 
and he's whinging to his friends and they come up with a great plan. And I love Mordecai uh, Haman's friends here. They're fantastic. Uh, They're the kind of friends you don't want to have. But these friends come up with a great plan to get a 15-metre skewer stick, put it in the backyard, go and ask the king, look, you know, give him a few drinks and he'll do whatever you want, Haman, he always does, and, and just get him to sign off and bring Mordecai here and skewer him on it the next morning. And we see how he responds. Uh, he responds, he's delighted with the idea of turning Mordecai into a shish kebab. He thinks it's a wonderful thing. And so he's gone up and down and up and down and, and off he goes to the palace to seal the deal. And, and he gets there and he thinks it's not going to take long. You know, the king will sign this off in no time. And, uh, and as soon as he gets there, the king invites him into his bedroom. Haman must be thinking at this point, oh, this is pretty good. You know, he's invited me right into his room. You know, we're really tight at the moment, the king and I. Things are going to go as planned. And then it all comes unraveled. The king starts talking about someone he wants to celebrate, someone he wants to honour. And Haman thinks, oh, this sounds good. I can't think of anyone else the king would want to do that for at the moment. This must be me. And so Haman puts out his wish list of what the ultimate honour would be to wear the king's robe and a crown and sit on the king's horse and have him paraded around the whole city and someone shouting, this is what the king does for the person he wants to honour. And Haman's thinking, man, all my Christmases have come at once. Two special parties and now a parade. This is the best week of my life. Until that moment where he realises he's in the roller coaster and his harness is not connected. Go and do it, says the king, for Mordecai. Now the king's got no idea of this feud between Haman and Mordecai. The king has no idea that the very reason why Haman is there in the palace at that early hour of the morning is to actually ask to kill Mordecai. And you can only imagine the terror that Haman must have felt. It's funny, actually, this is the one point where the Bible doesn't tell us the emotions that Haman is going through. But it doesn't need to, does it? Because we know. We know exactly what he was going through at that point. We know the terror, the humiliation, the fury, the loathing, the envy. The terror of knowing that all of a sudden, when he thought he had everything sorted, his world is spinning out of control. Terror of thinking, well, what's this, you know, this violent and volatile king going to do once he starts talking to Mordecai? Once Mordecai gets in his ear, well, what's he going to do next? This king might flip in an instant and I might be out on my backside. He must have been feeling terror that his plan might backfire and he would be the one thrown out of the roller coaster to his death. And so he rushes back to his home with egg on his face and covered in shame, hoping for a little bit of comfort. Uh, But then I reckon this is my favourite part of this chapter – I just love the way that his wife and friends uh, respond. Have a look at verse 13. And it's, it's incredible because they describe the situation perfectly. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. That's good, friends, isn't it? One minute they're saying, oh, yeah, sure, go skew the guy, no big deal. 
Next minute they're going, oh, of course, he's a Jew, didn't you know? Of course this was going to happen. What they're saying, what does that mean? What does it mean he's a Jew? Well, it means that he is one of the people that worships Yahweh, the true God. That God, remember, who actually brought Israel out of Egypt with incredible plagues, who led them through the sea and destroyed Pharaoh and his army. You remember that God who drove out all the nations before them? That God who rescues his people time and time again? Actually, it wasn't that long before that that God had rescued three Jews in that very city who the king had thrown into a huge burning furnace. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course you can't stand against him. He's a Jew. Why didn't you say that a couple of days before, guys? See, Haman has gone to war against the wrong God. He started a battle that he cannot win. And in that moment, Haman realises he's totally stuffed. He must be sweating in his jocks. What's about to happen to me? It only took 24 hours for Haman to go from the top of the world to the very bottom of the pile. Only 24 hours for everything he thought he had for the control for the life he'd built to completely come undone. And it seems like a kind of drastic and unlikely story, doesn't it? I mean, this seems like the kind of thing that maybe Shakespeare would write. Uh, It's just so perfect that it almost seems like it's not true, right? All the pieces just fall into, into the right place just so perfectly, every little tiny detail. The fact that Mordecai had been there and heard this assassination attempt at the very beginning of the book. The fact that he'd reported it and then it got forgotten about. The fact that the king couldn't sleep this night. The fact that Esther had come up with this idea for two banquets, and we don't even know why, instead of just one. It all plays together so perfectly so that here, everything comes crashing down on Haman, and we see that there is no way you can win a battle against God. But because it all comes together so perfectly, it it almost seems a bit like a fairy story, doesn't it? It almost seems a bit like a Shakespeare or a Hollywood. And and Haman, he seems just this perfect villain. He's just so cocky, so hateful, so much like, like the kind of person you would draw if you were to go and draw a perfect villain. But that's where Psalm 2 comes in. Have a look at Psalm 2. The Lord is King. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. See, when we look at Psalm 2, we realise that Haman is not just some out there outlier, just one really wicked dude. Just one of those ones that just comes along every now and then, you know, there's one every generation. Now, Haman's not just some weird anomaly. It might seem rare that someone who, like Haman, has so much power like he had. It might be rare that someone like Haman might have so much control and ability to wipe out every Jew off the face of the planet like Haman had planned. But according to Psalm 2, 
Actually, all nations plot against God and his anointed. All rulers attempt to throw off God's control. All peoples are opposed to God's rule. See, Haman isn't just some odd outlier and the rest of mankind's basically good. Actually, we're all like Haman at heart in opposition to God. Well, who is this anointed that the psalmist speaks of? Have a look at verse 6. God says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Now for Haman, a war against the Jews was war against God himself. If you go to war with God's people, you've actually gone to war with God. And in going to war with God's people, he's actually going to war with everything that God has said he is doing and has planned and has promised for the whole of creation. Actually, Haman, in going to war against the Jews, was going to war against God's promises. You see there on the back there, that little chart. God had promised that he would build his people. He'd promised that he would put them in his special place. He promised he'd pour out his blessings on them. And ultimately, the way he would do this was by putting over them his king. And so as Haman stands in opposition to the Jews, he stands in opposition to God's promises and God's king. But God says, he's not worried about people like Haman. How does he respond there in Psalm 2? The Lord from heaven laughs. He scoffs at those who would start a battle against him. And why? Well, because he's already installed his king. He has already installed his son. And all who fight and war against him will be destroyed. Have a look at verse 10. Be wise and be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. See, the arrival of God's king actually divides all of mankind into two camps. Every single human is in one of two camps because God says here that those who accept God's son as king are on one side and those who reject God's son as king are on the other. If we fast forward 500 years from Haman's day, we come to the arrival of God's king. We come to the time when God declared Jesus to be that king that he had promised, to be the king that they had been waiting for. And we know for certain that Jesus is God's king because witnesses, many witnesses, saw the risen Lord Jesus lifted up into heaven to take his place on the throne. And Jesus said that anyone who isn't for him is against him. Anyone who isn't his friend is his enemy. Anybody who chooses not to make peace with Jesus is actually still at war with Jesus, just like Haman. But he came to offer peace. And this is the beautiful good news of the Christian message. 
Look at verse 10 again in Psalm 2. Be wise, be warned. There's no point of a warning if you can't do anything about it. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, Jesus, the king, came to give refuge. He came to make peace. He came to forgive enemies like Haman and like us. And for those who accept and acknowledge him, he blesses. And the honour that he will pour out on his people makes that parade that Xerxes threw for Mordecai look like child's play. The blessing and the honour and the glory that he will put on his people, we can't even imagine. And for those who switch sides, for those who change their allegiance and offer their allegiance to Jesus, will be blessed and protected and guarded by him in the same way that God protected Mordecai and Esther and the Jews of that day. And that message of peace is still held out today. There's still time and opportunity for every person to make peace and kiss the sun. Well, we live in a world full of Hamans. Thankfully, not too many of them have the power he held. But actually, regular, everyday God-ignorers who refuse to accept Jesus as king are every bit as much enemies of God as Haman was. Some, like Haman, do go on the attack. We see all around the world, we do see Christians being killed, persecuted, driven out of their homes because there are people who hate God. But for many, many are pretty apathetic. Most don't really care that much what Christians are doing. Most aren't out on the attack. They're typically not so, uh, sociopaths set on genocide. Actually, most wouldn't even think of themselves as enemies of God. Actually, lots probably think that, you know, if there is a God, well, they're probably on good terms. See, most are going on with ordinary lives, but they have refused to come and acknowledge Jesus as king. They've refused to give their allegiance to him. It's a little bit like being on a roller coaster, not having any idea that you're about to be thrown out the side. See, as you think about your friends, your neighbours, your relatives who, who don't acknowledge Jesus as king, many of them seem to have their lives together, don't they? Many of them seem to be in control. They seem to do what they want. They seem pretty happy about that. They don't seem particularly bothered by that. Many don't seem to have particularly tender consciences. They don't seem worried. They, they're fine. Life's good. What have they got to be worried about, especially in Australia? And like Haman on his way home from that first banquet, everything seems fine, but it's not. As we think about the 38,000-odd residents of the Mount Barker area, there's at least, at least half of those who actually don't identify at all as Christians. 
even of those who do identify as Christians, probably only half of them would genuinely have Jesus as their king. You put those numbers together, you're looking at at least 20,000 people in our area who are on the wrong side of Jesus. At least 20,000 people who don't realise the disaster that's about to hit them. Now, if you think about it, if you think at least one in two people on a roller coaster were about to fly out the side and die, you'd make a noise about it, wouldn't you? If you thought that at least one in two people sitting on that amusement ride were heading for disaster, we'd be making some serious noise. And yet that is the case eternally for our community, that at least one in two of our community are headed for disaster, just like Haman. Maybe that's you today. Actually, maybe you've joined us this morning and you definitely can't say that you're friends with Jesus. Maybe you, didn't, you don't think you're an enemy of Jesus, but you can't say that actually, you know, Jesus is really my king and I'm living to serve him. Well, I want to warn you, like the psalm, I want to encourage you that actually you need to turn to Jesus for salvation, that he brings peace and that's good news. Because sooner or later, the ride will explode. Whether it's illness, whether it's a car accident, whether it's a heart attack, a hemorrhage, a a snake bite, a head injury, sooner or later for all of us, the ride will end. Kiss the sun, make peace with God's king, accept that forgiveness that he offers. And what, is, what does it look like for us as we live in this world? I mean, how do we, as we see the tragedy unfolding around us, how do we respond? Well, we learn from Jesus. 500 years after Haman set up that wooden death spike, Jesus himself hung on a wooden death spike. And what did he do while he was there? He prayed for the Hamans of his generation. He prayed for all the enemies of God. He prayed for the ones that had nailed him there and hung him there to die. And what did he pray? He prayed that they would be forgiven. He prayed that they would accept the offer of peace that he was bringing. They would accept his sacrifice in their place. And so let us be people who, like Christ, like our Saviour, like the King, pray for those around us. Pray for those who are sitting in a roller coaster with no seatbelt. Pray that they will kiss the sun, turn to Jesus and be saved.